What was amazing that once I started teaching those little kids, I just loved it. I mean, they were so enthusiastic and creative. I mean, every day somebody turned out this masterpiece. And so I went first, I went to Caroline Rosin to work as an apprentice. She was very enthused in the beginning. And then the band character that I was talking to about where I say what I think, that didn't exactly approach us one to another. During the start and the rise of the Hitler period, we got a letter to Berlin which said, um, would you consider coming to Blackmon College is a pioneering uh, adventure. And when we came to that point, we both said that's our place. Hello, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Stephanie Ashley, and I work as an archivist here at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Every artist gets their start somewhere, and it's often through a dedicated teacher. In this episode, we will listen to just a handful of stories about pedagogy, apprenticeship, and the many people who contribute to artistic development and so much more. We're sending an extra special thank you to all of the educators out there who enrich lives inside the classroom and out. Ronald Ho is a jeweler who grew up in Hawaii and made his career in Washington State. While he's widely known for his intricate, symbol-laden work, Ho has also been celebrated as an arts teacher. In his 2017 oral history with Lloyd Herman, he described the surprising lessons that he learned while teaching and how it affected his creative work. I took this list in and I said I wanted to have a ninth grade art class. And what happened was, in order to do that, I had to give up one of my planning periods, but I didn't care because these were such wonderful students, you know. And I'm guessing you get a, a lot of pleasure and feedback from, uh, from teaching. That you, you haven't told, uh, told us where you were teaching and what your teaching trajectory after Hoquian. I applied and got to teach in Bellevue. So what happened at first, I, from 1960, to 1969, I taught in the junior high school. But at that point, at Newport High School in the Bellevue School District, uh, Rod Adams was teaching then. And so they needed to have a a jewelry program started there. Hmm. So they asked me if I would transfer to the high school. And that's how I started teaching the high school Julia program, as well as painting, design, and also photography. And midway through my teacher career at the high school, we lost enrollment. And so they said to me, you know what? You're going to have to teach elementary art half time. And I thought, I don't want to teach those little kids. They said, no, you have to. So I started teaching elementary art. In the mornings, I would teach the high school. And this, this is at Newport? At Newport. Newport. And then in the afternoons, 
I would start at the elementary school. What was amazing that once I started teaching those little kids, I just loved it. I mean, they were so enthusiastic and creative. I mean, every day somebody turned out this masterpiece. I remember once you had a trunk full of your students' work that you were so proud of that you showed me. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. The thing is, those little kids were so lovely because they would come up to me and say, Oh, Mr. Ho, Mr. Ho, art is my favorite subject. And I always thought, if you could only keep that kind of enthusiasm yeah. going the rest of the life, we would have these creative individuals. But, you know, by the time they got to high school, they already had what I call braces on their brains. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got recognition as a, an art teacher, I, I believe. Well, first of all, I started with the Washington Art Education Association. And so they gave me this award, which then allowed me to be part of the National Art Education art education um, conference where they also selected the top art, elementary art educator, which I also got at, at that point. For, for some of you who were initially reluctant to do that. Yes, exactly. You know, you know, I actually taught in the end for 34 years. Um, many pieces made. That's right. And you know, when I was teaching, actually that was a, a great time of creativity for me because even though I was teaching I would sometimes be working in my studio till 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning and then go to bed and get up and go to school. Vivian Brown left a remarkable impression as a painter, activist, and educator. In her art, she moved between landscape, abstraction, and critical portraits that weighed black women's experiences from the 1960s until her death in 1993. Alongside her painting, she also co-founded Soho 20 Gallery, which was one of the first women's art cooperatives in New York, and she worked tirelessly to promote the arts through pedagogy and exhibitions. In her 1968 oral history with Henry Ghent, she talks about the powers, possibilities, and problems of teaching art. Tell me uh, about your teaching career. Oh, well, I began teaching in South Carolina. And I had, had absolutely no training in education because, as I told you, they did think I was material at Hunter. And I didn't think that because I had a lisp. So when I went to South Carolina, I taught in a Negro high school, which had many vocational courses. There were two in Columbia, and I was at Booker T. Washington. That was very difficult. The first year, I, I just didn't know how I was going to make it. But it, it became better. There were many community activities in, in the South. You know, the high school was the center of all social activities, and that helped. City hearing don't have quite that much, although everyone's trying to do that now. Then I, after that, I worked at something else. Oh, I was a secretary for a while 
addicted home secretary at the National Board of Presbyterian Mission. I am terribly bored with that. At least in the classroom, we had your own room and you were the boss. And being a secretary was pretty terrible. So I went back to teaching and I taught in uh, junior high school in Bayside, Queens. It's a brand new school and it was uh, quite a job. From there, I went to another junior high school in Brooklyn, which was designated one of the most difficult schools in the city. I met some wonderful people there. One of the artists I know taught there. And from there, I went to high school. And high school was a, a paradise in comparison to junior high school teaching. And after I got to high school, I began painting much more seriously. Somehow the two together. That was a good experience. And I, I taught in that high school for seven years before I went you know. And then, oh, I finally quit. I resigned. And it was a year after I'd come back from California because I couldn't stand not painting anymore. And after you teach for a while, certainly after, and all in all, I taught for 11 years classroom. And after such a period of time, you begin stagnates, you know? And the children begin answering, uh, different, different classes of children begin answering questions in exactly the same way, in exactly the same words. And the routine is just so, it's just all rote. And your mind begins to go around in a little circle. So I, I had to resign. There. I really didn't want to because, again, there's a security business. But uh, I couldn't get a leave of absence or anything like that because art is not considered really that important in the school system. You know? And you look surprised. No, it isn't. If anything goes, you know, like this year, funds are being cut and art teachers are being let go. And that's the first thing. There is something very wonderful about teaching. I don't mean to say that it's all boring and that it's all drudgery because it isn't there is something that just sparks you and you do get a great deal from children and in the high school they're at a point where then things are very very exciting and they're knowledgeable enough and they are um, energetic enough so that they uh, they pursue their curiosities and their pursuit sparks you and your thinking and your ideas you speak of art as being sort of a stepchild in uh, uh, education. Do you think that the government should subsidize the arts in this country? Oh, yes. Oh, wholeheartedly, yes. Mm. I've always thought that. I, I think that the government subsidizes so many things that it's necessary. And I think it's necessary for, for this country and not really so much for the individual artist, because that artist knows he has to fight, he's going to fight. But it's necessary for this country to heed what an artist gives to people and what, what the artist's purpose is. Because we've been going along in one direction for such a long time, and it's frightening, it's dreadful, what's happening and what can happen you know, mechanization and industrialization and with this new robots going on. And it's only the artists who can save uh, people from this. 
you're only just letting them look and see. And if it's a responsible government, then it is incumbent upon them to keep this alive rather than sitting on it all the time, you know, trying to stamp it out. It's, uh, I really think it's frightening what can happen. And I also think that the government is beginning more and more to realize that something has to balance this materialistic world we've built up here. There isn't anything else but the artist to do that. Teaching can also be a vital current for an artistic practice. Carmen Lomas Garza has been a leader in Chicano activism through her work as a painter, illustrator, and educator. In her 1997 oral history with Paul Karlstrom, she recounts an episode from the end of her own education in Texas that galvanized her efforts for equity in the classroom and beyond. You don't finish your student teaching, you don't get your you're teaching certification and you don't get your degree. So um, I was taking my uh, art education class and uh, you get assigned to a, a public school that participates in this uh, uh, training of, uh, of uh, students, education students. So I got placed in Robstown High School. In where? Robstown High School which is just north of Kingsville. Oh, it's about half an hour's drive from Kingsville. Robstown is heavily populated by Mexican-Americans and Mexicans. Mm. The high school was over 80% Mexican-American. There was only, at that time, there was only one faculty that was Mexican-American, and he was the assistant coach. There was on campus uh, a lot of unrest because... The Chicano movement was being known, now it's becoming more aware. And, and some of the organizers of the Chicano movement on campus at the university were from Robstown and were very much aware of the discrimination and racism and, and uh, inequities in, in Robstown, the public school system. And it only had one high school. So I was student teaching in Robstown High School. I had the morning classes. And the art teacher gave me some instructions. In the art room, it was in a building that was connected to adjoining a shop, auto shop. In between the auto shop and the art room was the auto shop teacher's office. And in the auto shop teacher's office was the a radio, which he kept on, piped into the auto shop and was also piped into the art room. The radio station that was always turned tuned into was a country western station. And the shop teacher told me, you cannot change the radio. It has to stay on this country western station. You can turn it off, but you can't change the radio station. So, we, so I started with the classes. And, of course, the Mexican-American students, after a while, would, would say, can you change the radio station to blah, blah, some blah, good blah. music? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell them, well, I can't because the shop teacher won't let me do that. And so in this class, I'd have, you know, the majority was Mexican-American. Great majority was Mexican-American. And I had some high school students 
They recently arrived from Mexico. They did not speak English. So I was not allowed to speak Spanish to the students. I had to do all of my instruction in English. So what I would do is I would give the instructions in English. And then when I was going around talking to the students, I would cheat. <laughs> the students would ask me in Spanish to explain what I had said. You know, So how am I going to not explain to them? Of course. So I would explain to them. Besides, you're interested in them learning something. Exactly, right. right. So I would explain to them. And, um, <clears throat> and then eventually they would say if I could change the station. So I, no. So what I decided to do is I turned off the radio and I went to the library and I checked out a record player. Oh. And I told the students, you can bring your records from home. The first half hour will be country western. The second hour will be whatever you bring from home of your records. So we did that. We started to do that. About the third day, I put on a Carlos Santana album. And that was too much for one of the white students. He got up, yelled at me, obscenities, said, how dare you put, I'm tired of hitting, hearing this Mexican music and I don't want to hear any more of it. And I don't have to listen to this. I'm going to tell, I'm going to talk to the principal. It was the principal's son. Oh, no. So he went and left without my permission. Yeah, well, obviously I had no good taste in music. Well, I, whatever. <laughs> so uh, the art teacher, my the art teacher got in trouble because the, the principal then went and complained to her. So I got into trouble. No more records. So from then on, I was on the watch. So, okay, so no more speaking in Spanish, no more music. And then a few weeks later, uh, not too long after that, actually, one morning I had the first class. At uh, the high school, it's not an enclosed building. It's got these wings, outdoor wings, you know. So the, the hallway is just a, a porched area. I started hearing, Chicano power, walk out, Chicano power. And it kept getting louder and louder and louder. And the windows were open because it was still hot. And the, the students came by, and right then, as this, about one-third of the, of the kids got up and left. I knew what it was about. I had no idea it was going to be happening. Mm -hmm. I was not told by the Mayos on campus that they were going to stage a walkout in Robson High School. And I knew what it was about, though, because it had been happening in other towns, and, and uh, you know, so I knew and I, I didn't stop the students. I couldn't have stopped them physically yeah, anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, so they got up, the boys, it was mostly boys that got up and left. A couple of girls got up and left. And they were yelling, Chicano power and walk out and we want our history. We want Chicano teachers and blah, blah, blah. And so then things, you know, they left. And there were still some kids in there and they were asking me in Spanish, me voy o me quedo, voy o me quedo. And I said in English, whatever you, you feel you have to do, do. I cannot physically stop you. So some more girls left mm -hmm. and so a few more boys left. And I went ahead and conducted the classes. It was sparsely populated, but I still conducted the classes.
Practices like metalwork and jewelsmithing often rely on apprenticeship models, where new artists learn from experienced practitioners over years to refine their craft. Irina Brinner, a sculptor, jeweler, and opera singer who was born in Russia in 1917 and made her career in San Francisco, describes a catalyst moment when she saw the work of sculptor Claire Falkenstein, as well as her drive for an apprenticeship afterwards in her 2001 oral history with Arlene Fish. And then I saw a sculpture of Claire Falkenstein. I was really interested in that. Where did you see her work? Just saw on somebody. Somebody had a band, a silver band, and here hung a completely free mobile, you know. Mm -hmm. And I thought, my God, but that is sculpture. I don't have to go away from sculpture. I just will change the size and approach, and it has to be in relation to the human body. That was a revelation to me. And so I went first, I went to Caroline Rosine to work as an apprentice. She was very enthused in the beginning. And then the band character that I was talking to about where I say what I think, that didn't exactly approach us one to another. And it was difficult to work for her. She was paying me something like 60 cents an hour. And every time I broke a sew and I was starting, I didn't know she was very upset about it. So it just two months will worked and then it didn't work. And then Bergman was uh, looking. Uh, that is through, through Frank I, I got to him. And he was both jeweler and potter. And he continued for, it was before Christmas, about two months before Christmas, and he gave me, he said, you sit and do all my jewelry, and I'll do my sculpture, my pottery. And so I had to go through the whole thing, and he was so wonderful. And he paid me half of what he got from the store. So, the, you know, everything was somehow, the whole approach was different. Were you working in silver or gold? In silver. In silver. Yeah. And there were lots of constructed pieces, and uh, I learned how to sew and how to, but calmly, nobody was angry at me at anything, you know. <laughs> and was, he was an interesting, very interesting man, so I really enjoyed doing it. And he said, don't quit it. Don't quit it. You definitely have something for it. So I went to adult education classes where they taught me where I can buy the material and so on and so on. And we moved away from the Richmond district. We bought a, a house on Broderick Street in Marina. And I had a whole room for my workshop. But I didn't have much money to do anything. So I had a washing machine motor for polishing, and a metal ironing board was a place on which I soldered, and I had just a alcohol, little alcohol torch, and Benson burner. That were my first soldering equipments.
Annie Albers blazed an incredible trail in the textile arts as she went on to influence, inspire, and teach new generations of fiber artists. Albers was born in Berlin, Germany in 1899, and she studied at the Bauhaus in Weimar in 1922. There she studied with famed artists including Johann Itten and Paul Klee, the latter of which she describes in her 1968 oral history with Seven Feshi. I understood Klee was your teacher, I think. Well, in a very limited way. I admire Klee very much, but what I learned from him, I learned from looking at his pictures, because as a teacher, he was not very uh, effective. I sat in in a class which uh, he gave to uh, the weaving students, and I think I only attended perhaps three of them, because Clay was so concerned with his own works that he walked into the room, went up to the blackboard, turned his back to the class, and started to explain something that uh, he probably thought was of concern to those uh, listening to him, but he probably didn't know at all where each one of us there was in his own development, in his own concern, in his he own was not searching. Interested in and that. he didn't. There are some students who I'm sure had a more direct contact with him. I didn't have it at all. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I find that he probably had more influence on my work and my thinking by just looking at what he did with a line of a dot of a posh talk. And I tried in a way to find my way in uh, my own material and my own craft discipline. Mm-hmm. I understand that um, imagery never interests you very much. You mean by that representation? Well, and I would like no, to no, why? Not, not really. Because of this... Uh, what I just said, I was trying to build something out of dots, out of lines, out of uh, a structure yeah. built of those uh, elemental elements yeah. and, and not the transposition into an idea, I see, see, into yeah. a literary idea. Yeah. Albers came to the United States in the 1930s with her husband, the painter Joseph Albers, to teach at Black Mountain College near Asheville, North Carolina. Now we just talk about your work. I would like to ask you, do you really sense there is a very different style between what you did in the Bauhaus and what you do now, for instance? Not really. Not really. I think there is, well, like everybody has a period of development. These which I showed you are although they may look very simple, are technically very intricate. They are two-ply and three-ply yeah, weaving. Yeah. That is something that is uh, hand-weaving, very rarely done today. So from technical considerations, uh, various uh, ideas develop, and uh, I, I see no real break, although the thing may look... I it may look, that's why yes. I asked you. Yes. Yeah. yes, but uh, there is no break that when I left the Bauhaus, I stopped doing this. And then you came to the, to Black Mountain, to Black Mountain College. Um, we we got um, a, during the start and the rise of the Hitler period. We got a letter uh, to Berlin, which said, um, 
would you consider coming to Blackmore College is, is a pioneering uh, adventure. And when we came to that point, we both said that's our place. And it turned out to be a very interesting place because, uh, again, it gave us the freedom, freedom to build up our own work. Joseph built up his whole teaching Mm -hmm. there, and it's called color work, which has nothing to do with anything he had left behind in Europe. Uh, I was building a, up a weaving workshop and got into teaching and developed teaching methods that... Uh, what is your methods of teaching? How do you... Uh, well, the, the, it is, if you, maybe it's an exaggerated term to call it method at all, but I try to put my student in, uh, at the point of zero. I try to let them imagine that they are in, uh, let's say, in a desert in Peru. No clothing, no nothing, no pottery even at that time, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, to imagine themselves at the beach with nothing. And uh, what do you do? There are these fish at the Humboldt current swimming by, marvelous fish, the best in the world, in fact, because of the cold current there, hot and windy. So what do you do? You wear a skin of a kind of some animal, maybe to protect yourself from too much sun or maybe a wind occasionally, and you want to roof over something and so on. And how do you gradually come to realize what a textile can be, and we start at that point, and I let it's them, and I let them uh, use anything, grass, and, and oh, I don't know what, and let them also imagine what did you use at that point? Did you take skin of fish and cut them into strips to make possibly longitudinal elements out of which you could uh, knot something together to catch the fish easier and get carrying materials in that way and... and the nation there. Exactly. And so the in, uh, absolutely on an inventive... Invented. Invented. Well, and uh, gradually we then uh, invented looms, you know, other yeah. sticks and so on, and the Peruvian backstrap loom. And once they understand these basic elements that the backstraps, that the Peruvian backstrap loom have, Embedded in it is anything that a high-power machine loom today has, and they understand it in a completely different sense than walking into a factory and seeing those things operate, because they know what is necessary and what kind of inventions have incurred in the course of history. Well, this is a very rough way of doing it, so it goes back to a imagination and invention. Yeah. Teaching happens in the classroom as well as through artistic connections across generations. Carlos Villa was a Filipino-American multimedia artist who explored cultural collision, 
and his time as a student and teacher at the San Francisco Art Institute was an important part of the awareness building that marked his work. He talks about his teachers and colleagues, including the sculptor Manuel Neri, and the complexities of influence in his 1995 oral history with Paul Karlström. Continuing the interview with Carlos Villa, session three, tape one, side B. Carlos, we were still talking about um, those days, um, early 60s, I think is really what we're talking about, but very, very interesting times in and around the Art Institute Muir or California School of Fine Arts. And you were talking about some of the, uh, some of the people and I'd like to continue with that, trying to create some of the sense of the ambiance, you know, the situation, uh, what what you what you characters were uh, thinking about. You know, besides having a good time, I think that goes without saying. But uh, no doubt, well, I should ask it, not tell you. But did you see yourselves as uh, you know a special group? That these were special times. That there is. I think that. I think that most everyone had an aim or a place that they wanted that they wanted to be, or there were specific kinds of issues that everyone was dealing with. I think I think the 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 people that were uh, that were maybe the most uh, the most focused. I can't say that I was the most focused person. I, I I would say that I was taking a lot of things in, and I was just learning everything. I had a lot of catching up to do. Uh, I I failed to mention uh, Bill Morehouse as as, as a uh, a very precious. He was a very very precious commodity for me because his teaching his teaching allowed me to find myself. He taught a class at the same time Manuel taught a class. Manuel freed me a lot, but then uh, but but then I'll say one thing about Bill Morehouse. He had a class dealing with painting but using using uh industrial materials and he cleaned out his garage and he brought all of these this old paint and tar and everything else like that he says do some art with it and i remember doing some art with this uh roofer cement and it all of a sudden i bypassed a bunch of centuries of of art to come to my own right away I mean, I was getting a lot from Manuel, but then you know, uh, Manuel and Joan. But just that, just that one class. Well, what did that tell you? I mean, what did you get from that experience, other than, well, wow, look at, I can use this uh, stuff that is certainly non traditional. I was, I made a connection with, I made a connection with myself. See, this was, this was an important thing because when I was in everybody else's class and everybody was saying, "Oh, you're doing good. You're doing good. You're doing wonderful." Just keep on doing what you're doing. Oh, look what he did. Look what he did. And I was, my my eyes just weren't that sensitive or attuned to what, uh, to exactly what was, what I was about or what I was thinking about. But when Bill said, do some art with this, this tar, when I did it, uh, all of a sudden it made a direct connection to me. Since I've been teaching, you know, like now for 26 years, I've noticed that with myself, or with anyone, or with anyone else, you know, who who's very, very young, you, you go through those, you go through those pains, and you get those, and you, and you, and you get those same lessons, and that's it's the lessons of just copying rather than going to the essence. 
you know, like, okay, then you see this great Rauschenberg piece. Oh, God, where do I get a goat, you know? And then paint it a different color and get a different size tire and say it's really mine. Lee Krasner, a path-breaking abstract painter who was born in Brooklyn in 1908, had the gamut of experiences during her artistic education. In her 1964 and 1968 interview with Dorothy Seckler, Krasner talks about memorable teachers in the galleries and in the studios across New York City. At the Academy, uh, who, what artists had you admired would you have liked to have painted? Oh, at the Academy, I was very busy trying to do my best like everybody else was, only I never could make it. For the life of me, it wouldn't come through looking like Academy. Oh, I see. <laughs> Although I was exerting every possible <laughs> effort to try to make it, it just kept pushing a different direction. Yes. So I was not what is considered, I wasn't a prize student yes. there by a long shot. <laughs> and then when you saw your first Matitas in the Casas, what roughly what year would that have been? Well, now this is hard for me to point down. I am at the Academy as a uh-huh. student, and this was a Saturday afternoon. We, a group of us went down and uh-huh. saw this, and that really hit like an explosion. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, nothing else ever hit that hard until I saw Pollock's work. And then did you uh, did this begin to affect your work immediately? You began to have a feeling. Oh, I imagine there must have been. I don't know if it was immediate. Mm-hmm. Well, to this extent, there were, as I said, there were a group of us that went down to see this. Now, that would have meant some eight or ten of us that mm-hmm. went down. When we came back on Monday to class, we did succeed in taking the model stand and pulling it out in the center of the room, away from the dark red velvet background, and took the jacket off the man and put a bright color lumber jacket on. And on the first day of criticism, our instructor walked in and did about three criticisms, then hurled the brushes across the floor and walked out of the room saying, I can't teach this class anything. So it wasn't that I was affected. I think quite a few people were affected. Story there. Uh (laughs) Who was the instructor? Uh, A very charming, delightful, man who practically never raised his voice was extremely patient. I believe he was Mr. Sidney Dickinson, who was our portrait instructor. Mm-hmm. I remember that quite mm-hmm. accurately, what mm-hmm. happened that afternoon. So I'd say I wasn't the only one affected as yes. we saw the exhibition on <laughs> Saturday. Uh-huh. And instruction was one of the days, you know, I yes. don't remember whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. This was his reaction after he did about three criticisms in the room. <laughs> And then you were on, uh, went on uh, painting in, on your own, following in this more or less in this direction. Of- well, I certainly seemed uh, mm-hmm. for the first time to be a little more at ease mm-hmm. with what I was trying to do as against trying, you know, I couldn't fit into mm-hmm. the school either at Washington Irving or at the Women's mm-hmm. Cooper Union or at the academy. At least there was some sort of identification here that didn't make me feel Mm -hmm. quite as foreign to myself. (laughs) How about cubism? Was there at that time where you affected very much? 
Well, uh, I'd say the, the the real impact of Cubism was after I started to work with Hoffman, uh-huh. who was one of the leading exponents in terms of explaining it here in this country. I, at least for me, it was yeah. so. So you were something of a foe, I suppose, at this point. Uh, Hard to say. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know how well, to classify well. it. I think I was pretty much searching at uh-huh. this point. How'd you make a living at this, at this time? Well, now then, uh, at one point, waitressing in uh, the village where I lived, and uh, then I decided to uh, do something practical about a livelihood. So I took my pedagogy to make so I'd be qualified to teach art. Mm-hmm. I got through with it. I took it at CCNY, did waitressing in the afternoons uh, or evenings, did this work in the daytime, got through, got my pedagogy, and decided the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to teach art. So I tore that up. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed teaching forever, moving courses online and putting more demands on our educators than ever before. Carrie Moyer, a painter in Brooklyn who is also the director of the MFA program at Hunter College, talked about the impact of arts education for all in her 2020 Pandemic Oral History with Ben Gillespie. You know, we're not in this moment when we haven't been for a long time, where the avant-garde, you know, even that term is kind of a relic. But there was a, in the 20th century, I was born in 1960, the avant-garde had a politic. These two, like the avant-garde and the word radical might go together. Do we think that artists are these change agents in the way that like, you know, Malevich or people in the Russian um, constructivist movement did, or even, you know, like the futurists who are much more conservative, in fact. The point that I'm trying to make is like, and this is something that most artists are going to recognize. It's like one of the things that is and has been sort of critical to art school is the fact that even if one doesn't become an artist, ultimately it becomes a tool for learning how to think in a kind of dialogic and critical way about how things are functioning. And I feel like instead of burying ourselves, even though this is the impulse and we're being told to stay home, it feels really even more necessary to sort of expose ourselves to things and information and participate in the best possible way we can. And not just by making a painting. Like painting is one one aspect of it, but being like a full citizen is just feels really critical right now. You know, I, you know, my personal instinct is I want to just stay in my studio and make paintings. Part of that is important, but it's also really, really essential to stay involved with the communities, be aware of what's going on, be, you know, participate in it. So that's my message for the day. (laughs) 
This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Hal and Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. The Archives is grateful for all of the art educators who make the world go round. We are honored to be a resource for you. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.